All right. This is it, the beginning of our series in Daniel. Um, there are 12 chapters in Daniel, and together with the introduction, that'll be 13 weeks. It'll take us just about to the end of the summer. And as is typical when we do our summer series here at Terrell Road, uh, we uh, typically don't have outside speakers. It's all done by the men uh, in the chapel, and that to this year is no exception. Um, so uh, various of us will be getting up and sharing various parts of the book. But today we just want to get started in the book. And um, uh, we're going to do a little overview of, of it. So let me just tell you where we're going. Uh, I've only got six, six more slides, and those are the names of them. Daniel, setting, book, theme, flyover, and challenge. We'll start out by talking about the man, Daniel. There's a man in a book. The man, Daniel, we'll talk about him. Then we're going to talk about the setting, historical, geographical, and it's good to get ourselves framed in the, uh, the place and the time that the book was written so that we understand the events in it. And maybe uh, as we pr proceed through the series, some of the other speakers will be able to connect to these uh, uh, facts about the setting. Then we're going to take a look at um, the book itself uh, as a whole and try to understand things like uh, when it was written and who it was written by. Should be no surprise there, although some people disagree. And then we're going to look at what is the theme of the book. And I'll mention three themes that uh, seem to come up again and again in the book. And then we're going to do a flyover. Flyovers are popular these days because uh, anybody can go out and buy a drone with a camera on it and fly over and take pictures of things from the sky. Well, that's what we're going to do. We're going to do a flyover of the book of Daniel. And I'm going to tell you what's in each chapter. And it'll only take a few minutes. Don't worry. We're not going to be here all day. But just to see them all written out together before we start going into detail in the coming weeks. And finally, I'm going to leave us with a challenge. Most of this is kind of technical. In an introduction, uh, it's hard to sort of make practical applications. But I want to end up with something practical, a challenge. And it's going to be a challenge for us that, A, you're going to be familiar with, and B, that I hope can be a challenge through the study of the whole book of Daniel. Okay? You excited? You ready to go? Let's go to the first slide, if this works. Great. Daniel. Daniel, the man, was one of the Bible greats. Uh, his whole life... Hold on just a sec, because I got myself some paper notes here. I just want to make sure I don't miss anything. Uh, his whole life was on display. Sort of reminds us of Joseph, right? Joseph, from a very young age, from 17 up until he died. We have all the details of his life. Same thing with Daniel. I mean, we don't see, it's, we don't see every detail, but we see the span of his life from the time that he was maybe 15 years old until uh, another 70 years later, we see a lot of things happening to him. So his whole life is on display in this book. And what we find is that it was a life of complete service and submission to God. It was like the ideal life. Again, a bit like Joseph. Um, Joseph was, was a, a little bit annoying when he was a teenager. But we don't have anything really negative about Daniel. It's all positive. A life that 
really, it would be great to emulate. And so we can be comfortable in studying his life that anything we see here is something that we can probably emulate. We see him uh, in all sorts of circumstances. For example, when he wouldn't eat the king's food as a teenager. We'll see that in chapter one. Uh, uh, when he, all the way up to when he was maybe 85 years old and he, he wouldn't stop praying three times a day, even when he meant, it meant he had to be thrown where? In the lion's den. He wouldn't stop praying. What a man. We'll see him rising to high political office. Even though he was just a young man there in Jerusalem, he ends up being almost at the top of the political spectrum, this political uh, landscape in, uh, in the great land of Babylon. Um, also reminds us of Joseph, doesn't it? Who did a similar thing. He went from Israel Canaan down into Egypt, and he became second in command over all of Egypt. There's some great verses. I just want to read this uh, this little passage to you because it's great. It's in Ezekiel, and uh, it says something about um, uh, Ezekiel refers to uh, refers to Daniel in his uh, book in uh, chapter 14 and verse 14. He says, um, well, let me start at 12. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. Now, just look at that list of three, Noah, Daniel, and Job. Daniel is included in a pretty high company here with Noah and Job. And of course, what Ezekiel is saying, what the Lord is saying through Ezekiel is that his his decree to to, uh, cut off the bread and, and give the Israelites into the Babylonians' hands was inexorable. It was going to happen. Even if they found the the three great, these three great men among them, uh, they would only save their own lives. They wouldn't, it wouldn't help that these men were there. So I just like the fact that Daniel is included. Now, by the way, Ezekiel, I'll mention this again in a moment, but Ezekiel probably knew Daniel. He was uh, certainly a contemporary of him in Babylon. And, uh, Daniel circulated in fairly high circles, so he may not have actually met Ezekiel, but I expect they did and knew each other. Anyway, so Ezekiel, who knows Daniel, includes him in that same company as Noah. And remember, Noah was and his family were the only people that were saved in the flood. God destroyed the entire world of human beings except for Noah. So that puts Noah pretty high, and Job, of course. Um, so he's, he's in great companies. He's, he's a, he's a, a model of how to live a full blessed life. Dare to be a Daniel. What about the setting? Well, here's uh, all the geography and all the history that you need on one slide. 
I told Rocco about this yesterday, and uh, he's, a, he's a history buff and a geography buff, and he didn't think I could do it on one slide. <laughs> but uh, here we are, one slide. So here's a map. Uh, this is a map of the Middle East, and it's a map that sort of shows the, the, the configuration of the great powers around the time of Daniel. Okay, so before that, the Babylonian Empire wasn't an empire. Before this, the great power in the land was the Assyrian uh, Empire, and its capital was Nineveh. Now, I can't really point to this effectively on Zoom because my mouse just disappears. So uh, so you're going to have to find Nineveh. It's sort of in the, in the center, left to right, and about a third of the way down from the top uh, in the region that's there called the Median Empire. But it was actually part of Assyria, and it was the capital of Assyria. And Assyria basically had all of the stuff that was green and the Media Empire and, and uh, Lydia, which is over in Turkey, and Elam, which is down part of Iran there today. Um, they, they had all of it. And it was, it was actually an, a kingdom for many years, uh, for, for at least 200 years, the Assyrian Empire had been there. And you remember that Israel, which had been split uh, early in its history into the 10 northern tribes and the two southern tribes, those 10 northern tribes had been taken captive by the great Assyrian uh, forces and transplanted out of Israel. And all that was left there was basically Judah. Um, that was the southern kingdom and uh, that included Jerusalem. You can see that there, Jerusalem and Judah. And, and that was the situation at the time that uh, the great battle between this rising kingdom of Babylon and the established kingdom of Assyria happened at Carchemish. Uh, well, that was actually in 605. The Nineveh itself was taken in 612, uh, where um, uh, uh, the Babylonians uh, conquered Nineveh. And then just a few years later, there was this great battle at Carchemish, where um, the, uh, the Egyptians... Uh, fought and the the uh, Assyrians fought and the Babylonians fought and the Babylonians won and that was sort of the the beginning of the great Babylonian empire in 605. Now 605 was important in our story because as part of this great sweep that the Babylonians did up from Babylon and up to Carchemish, you see where Carchemish is there? It's sort of, you see it says Babylonian empire and it's it's just above the B and the Y in Babylonian. Um, they, they, they swept down through Jerusalem. It was the first time, uh, the first of three contacts that the Babylonians had with, uh, with Judah. And you can read about all three of these in the Bible. I encourage you to do that. All three of them are in there. But in 605, they came down and, uh, and um, they uh, did sort of the first conquering of Jerusalem. Well, it wasn't much of a conquering, the, the, the main effect of the 605 thing was that Nebuchadnezzar, who was the, the king of Babylon, when he got back, he said, I want some of the best young men to be kidnapped or taken from Jerusalem and brought into Babylon. And one of those men 
was Daniel. So that was what I'm calling the first remnant, the first group, a small group of, of uh, um, nobles and uh, just really promising, um, high-functioning young men, maybe women too, we don't, we don't know. But uh, these were brought from, from Jerusalem all the way to Babylon. You see where Babylon is there, right? It's, uh, if you could see, it says Babylonian Empire, and then if you go straight down from the E, uh, almost to where the green turns into the Arabian Desert, it's, uh, that's Babylon uh, on the uh, Euphrates River there. And so they were brought, and, and there's a scale on that map, so it looks like it's about 500 miles. So it's a big trip. They brought them, all, and of course, they didn't fly. Um, so that's 500 miles. I've walked 500 miles, and it takes about a month if you walk it. So maybe it took, five, maybe it took about a month to travel. Um, they, they took these young men to Babylon, and that was the, that was the first remnant. So this, now, remember, these dates are all B.C., before Christ. So as you go down that list of dates, I know the dates are going, they look like they're going in reverse order, but that's just because they're B.C., and so... BC dates go in in reverse order as you're getting closer to zero and the time of Christ. 597, um, the the king comes, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes again, and uh, and, uh, you should read about those last five kings. I I, I don't have time to go into the last five kings of of Judah, but it was was a complete mess um, after the, the wonderful reforms of Josiah, then uh, his descendants uh, really messed things up. But anyway, uh, <clears throat> this uh, second group of captives was brought in 597. So how much later is that? 605 to 597, that's eight years. So it's, it's interesting to try and put yourself in Jerusalem and think about this. All these, these uh, bright young men were taken in 605, and eight years went by before Nebuchadnezzar came back. So they probably thought they were okay, in spite of all the prophets were saying, um, destruction is coming. It's on its way. They probably thought they were okay. But then this, uh, he descends again in 597 and uh, takes, <clears throat> takes all these, uh, these uh, people away. And included in that group, that second group, was Ezekiel. He was taken into Babylon at that time. And then finally, in 586, which was nine years later, Nebuchadnezzar came back, and once and for all, he destroyed Jerusalem. He destroyed the temple. He destroyed the walls. He had to siege, lay siege to it, and it took some time to do it, but he destroyed it, and he exiled all the people. Now, of course, we know that the reason that this was happening from God's point of view was God was punishing them for years and years of failing to keep the, well, for all of their sin, of course, but uh, the amount of time that they were to go into exile was based on the number of years that they'd failed to uh, the, keep the, uh, the Sabbath year. Every seventh year, they weren't supposed to be planting. And so it was uh, seven times 70, 490 uh, years uh, they, the 70 years, they hadn't kept that. And so that was why the exile was then to be 70 years. And if you work out these dates, it works out to exactly seven years. 50 years later, 
The Babylonian kingdom falls to the Median Empire. You see it to the north of the Babylonian kingdom there, right? Well, eventually those, the Median kingdom or the Medes and Persians swept down and took over the Babylonian empire. And we read about that in Daniel. We'll get to that. That's an exciting chapter. That's the chapter about the writing on the wall. And uh, that's, that's when that happens. So that's in 536. So 50 years. So the, the uh, Babylonian empire didn't last that long. It was a great and mighty empire, but it didn't actually last that long. And at that time, when uh, Babylon fell, the first, uh, the first of the um, three waves of people went back to, um, went back to Jerusalem. That was under Cyrus, who was a, a, a Mede. Uh, he was the king of Persia, actually, and he sent the first uh, group back under Zerubbabel. You remember that name? And then uh, sometime later in 457, another uh, remnant returned, and that was under uh, Ezra. And we can read about that in the book of Ezra. And then a third group in uh, 444 um, is led uh, by Nehemiah. And you can read about that in Nehemiah. Okay, so there were three the, the, the people were exiled in three waves and they were brought back in three waves. And that all that happened over a period of, well, 605 to 444. Um, that's about 260 years. It's a long period of time that this is happening. 260, that's, that's older than the United States, isn't it? Since the revolution. So much more could be said here, but that is roughly the setting. So you see the map, you see what the geography looks like. Um, there's a lot of desert in that picture. It's nice that there's a river there because it's, uh, other than the river, it's uh, pretty deserty. And, um, but that's where all the action was happening in, in history at the time was in these empires, the Assyrian and the Babylonian and the Medo-Persian empire. And we're going to hear a lot more about these empires as we get into the later parts of the book. And the empires that came after them and the countries that came after them, there's a lot in there, a lot of prophecies about it. And we'll hear about that. So that's the setting. How about the book itself? The book, the book is splits naturally into two parts. I told you there were 12 chapters. The first six chapters are narrative. They're the ones that we teach our kids. Daniel in the lion's den, the fiery furnace, and so on. These great stories in the book of Daniel. And then the second six are apocalyptic. Now, prophecy in the Bible tends to be of two different flavors. There's the kind of prophecy where a prophet condemns a nation for its uh, its sin and tells them that they will be punished. But there's also this apocalyptic literature, which which uh, talks about uh, uh, the future, what's going to happen in the future. Um, it's, not, it's, not so much, it's not so much about uh, punishment as it is about uh, hope for the future. And this kind of literature, the apocalyptic literature, tends to be written differently than uh, prophetic literature. Or you could say apocalyptic is a type of prophecy, a kind of prophecy. But... <clears throat> Um, the, uh, the, the, uh, apocalyptic literature, there's actually not a lot of it in the Bible, but it's much more symbolic. Um, it's written in prose rather than poetry. Most, 
Most of the prophecy in the Bible, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all these big prophecies are all written in poetry. But apocalyptic literature, which is primarily in this book and in Revelation, is written in prose. It tends to have a lot more symbols in it, symbolic things, um, uh, you know, animals and rams and goats and horns and, and things like that that represent things. Uh, so it's, it's symbolic about the future. It's a different kind of literature. So the whole second half of the book is like that. It's apocalyptic. And we'll be getting into that later in the summer. The book is also written in two languages, which is unusual for the Bible. Uh, we normally think of the Old Testament as being Hebrew and the New Testament as being Greek. But there's Aramaic here. There's actually Aramaic in the New Testament, too. Does anyone remember where it is? Well, when the Lord cried out on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, that was, I think that was Aramaic. Anyway, the Lord himself would have spoken Aramaic because Aramaic was sort of the lingua franca. It was the the common language in the area. It came from Assyria. Assyria had dominated for all these hundreds of years. And so that's what basically everyone spoke. It would be like the English of today. So Aramaic was what they spoke, but the Jews didn't speak Aramaic. They spoke Hebrew. Their language was Hebrew. So the book is actually written in both languages. It would be nice to say that one to six was written in, in uh, um, Aramaic and, and seven to 12 was written in, in Hebrew. Then we could sort of, there would be a nice connection there. It's not quite true. Chapter one is actually written in Hebrew as well. And chapter seven is written in Aramaic. But generally speaking, what people believe about these two languages and why it's written like this is that the parts that are written in Aramaic were primarily written to the Gentiles. In other words, uh, the mostly chapters one to six, the narrative part were written to the Gentiles and they're telling the Gentiles about who God is, the proclaiming who God is. So it's a, it's a declaration and a warning to the Gentiles. Whereas the, the apocalyptic part, the last chapters of Daniel are primarily to the Jews. And as I said, apocalyptic literature tends to be hopeful. It's hope for the future. And so this is hope for the Jews. And you're going to see that as we go through those. When was it written? There's two big theories about when Daniel was written. The correct one and the incorrect one. (laughs) The correct one is that it has an early date. In other words, it was written by Daniel. Maybe around 530 B.C. So now, if you remember those dates we were looking at, remember he was taken in 605. So how old would he be? 75 years old. In other words, later in his life, he was writing all of this down. When he was an older man, he was writing all of this down. And then there's a, a late theory that says that it was written around the, the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, which Rocco is going to tell us about in, uh, in a few weeks. Um, and the reason for the late theory, it was first put forth around, oh, 200 AD by some guy that looked at all these prophecies. He said, these are just way too accurate. 
to have been written before they happened. You're going to see this. The prophecies are really remarkably accurate. They're way too accurate. It must have been written after they happened. And he looked at it and he said, well, it looks like they're, they're correct up to here. And I think they're sort of incorrect after this date. So it's, this is the date it was probably written, 167. And that there's a significant date in Antiochus' life. But you'll, you'll hear about that eventually. So it's that late theory. But right away, the, uh, some of the great church fathers back at that time, they put down this Pophorus guy and they said, no, um, that's not true. But that theory has survived until today. And you'll find, if you go and look at um, uh, a non-conservative um, commentary on Daniel, that they'll take this same point of view for exactly the same reason. Oh, it, must have, it must have had a late date because they, 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 it's just way too accurate. But you know what? The book of Daniel itself attests this. In verse 1 of chapter 7, it says, Daniel wrote down the dream. It was Daniel writing it. So the book is the book is is telling a falsehood if it was if it had that late date. Um, and in chapter twelve, uh, the angel is saying to Daniel, "Daniel, seal the book." In other words, I've revealed all these things to you. Now seal the book. And the Lord Himself in um, in uh, Matthew chapter twenty four and verse fifteen. Uh, confirms that Daniel is the author of the book. So that's the point of view we're going to take. And I mention it because um, if you if you are motivated to go and read something on the internet about Daniel, you may find people saying that it was written late, but it wasn't written late. It was written at the time of Daniel by Daniel, and it records uh, his life. So that's the book. Two parts, two languages, early date. What's the theme? Well, I've written down three themes here. Um, one of the things I love about the book of Daniel is the three or so times in those early chapters where one of the kings is brought to the point where he acknowledges God as the supreme God of the universe. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar himself, we'll get to that story. I think you know the story where Nebuchadnezzar was, uh, was actually uh, sent out into the wilderness and lived like a beast. The king of all Babylon was sent to live like a beast, and he came back and he praised God. Or the fiery furnace, in the story of the fiery furnace. At the end of all that, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't bow down to the idol that Nebuchadnezzar put up. They were thrown in the fiery furnace. I hope I'm not giving anything away here. Like this is sort of like a spoiler alert. Surely there's nobody here who thinks that this is a spoiler. Um, they were thrown into the fiery furnace and they survived, of course. Um, the Lord himself, by the way, the Lord Jesus Christ makes an appearance uh, in this book at that point. Um, they come out and the words that he says after that about the Lord God are amazing. So there's a number of these uh, occasions uh, when when people say that um, after the lion's den. I mean, it's just it's it's wonderful. Um, uh, a second thing, uh, a second theme is that in in these prophecies, in the, in this apocalyptic um, uh, prophecy, we see uh, we see lists of kingdoms. 
you know, the gold and the silver. And, and we see lists of kingdoms and they all fall. And that's a really important thing. And we see that several times through the book, how one kingdom after another comes and it goes. It, it rises up to great power and then it falls. The, all the kingdoms come to the end. And ultimately, ultimately, according to this apocalyptic literature and according to Revelation as well, which is its companion book in the New Testament, they will be replaced by the one kingdom that will never pass away. God's kingdom. And that's one of the themes in this book. So as we read through this and study it and see these various kingdoms and try to sort them out, and we'll do that. We'll, we'll get them all lined up with the, with the, the uh, kingdoms on earth and so on. This is one thing to keep in mind. This is a theme that it's fine to study this and to see it. But what we need to really see here is that every one of those kingdoms comes to an end. And there's only one kingdom that's going to survive, and it's going to survive forever, and that is the kingdom of God. And then a third theme is the fate of the faithful. There's a really strong sense here that, um, that Daniel was faithful, and it gets rewarded. Let me actually just read to you um, these, uh, these words in chapter 12, the first three verses. At that time... Uh, Uh, shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as has never been seen since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. This is amazing. It just, it sounds like Revelation, right? The the, the Lamb's book of life in, in Revelation. These These books very much go together. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. You just imagine reading that as a Jew in exile in Babylon, those exciting words about the future, about that future kingdom, knowing that um, at least at, at the time that uh, the, the end of the book, that, the book was being written, and so it would then be disseminated and people would be able to read it. Um, the, you know, the, the, they had already seen one kingdom fall. They'd seen two kingdoms fall. They'd seen the Assyrian kingdom, and then shortly after that, the Babylonian kingdom had fallen. And what a hope that was for the future. The fate of the faithful is a, a great one. It's a positive one for the future. Those are three themes things that appear several times in the book, and the book seems to be emphasizing, Daniel seems to be emphasizing as he writes the book. All right, quick flyover. Here are the 12 chapters. Chapter one, Daniel and his friends are brought from Jerusalem in a foreign land, from a, into a foreign land, uh, and Daniel stands up to the king, 15 years old, some people estimate, and uh, he's, he's got such a strong character that when the king asks him to eat, um, his rich food, Daniel says no. More about that next week. Chapter two is Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Remember, he has a dream and he tells all his wise men, not only do you have to tell me what the dream means, you have to tell me what the dream was. He wouldn't tell them what the dream was. Uh, that's a great story. Then the fiery furnace. 
Uh, we know that story. That's in chapter three. Chapter four, I've already alluded to that. That was Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation. He, um, you know, he had raised up a, a big statue and, and people were to worship that. And he just, he felt like he was a god and the Lord completely humbled him. And actually he came to, we could say he came to know the Lord in that humiliation. Fantastic story in, in, in chapter four. I just love it. I love the end of it. Read that one this afternoon. It's a great story. Chapter five, Belteshazzar, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, sees the writing on the mysterious hand writing on the wall. Um, and uh, remember what it wrote? Meeny, meeny, tickle you farson. If you don't remember what that means, well, come back for uh, chapter five. Or read it this afternoon. Daniel in the lion's den is in chapter six. So those are the six great narrative stories. They're fantastic. And then we start into the apocalyptic part. We get a vision of four beasts in, uh, in chapter seven. And we get a vision of a ram and a goat in, in chapter eight. And these all have significance. And uh, we can't go into it now to tease this apart and figure it out and balance it against the companion book in Revelation. Um, it's hard work, but, uh, but your guys are going to do it for you. And uh, we're going to hear about uh, what these all mean. Daniel uh, chapter 9 is a, is a pivotal chapter. Um, it has two great things in it. Um, one is Daniel's prayer. And uh, this is a lengthy prayer that Daniel prays on behalf of the people of Israel. And um, it, it's just a truly remarkable prayer that he prays. It says so much about Daniel, about his own character, about the people of Israel, about um, the relationship between uh, a faithful man and God. Um, we'll learn a lot from that prayer. And uh, then the, 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 the end of that is the, the famous 70 weeks prophecy. And um, that is, that is an amazing prophecy. Uh, um, it, uh, it's a, it's a pretty precise timeline. It talks about very precise time intervals and, and lots of work has been done to try and line that up with uh, history. So we'll see what uh, whoever is doing chapter nine comes up with there. Um, and then chapters 10 through 12 kind of go together. Um, There's sort of all one vision or one experience that Daniel has. Um, he's, uh, he gets a visit from an angel um, he's strongly encouraged there in chapter 10. And then he gets this vision of uh, the kings and the wars that are coming in the future. And there's, of course, overlap between this prophecy and some of the previous prophecies. And then chapter 12 is really about the Great Tribulation. And um, it has that great number 1360 in it, I think it is, uh, number of days, which I think is three and a half years. But we'll see when we get to that. Uh, so that's the apocalyptic part, 7 through 12. So that's a quick flyover. Now, the fact that we've just done Daniel in three minutes doesn't mean that you shouldn't come back and hear the detailed analysis because there's much to learn here. Okay, finally, the challenge. Here's the challenge that I want us all to take as we're studying this book this summer. We'll learn a lot about Daniel this summer. And my challenge to all of us is that we dare to be like him. 
dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, and dare to make it known. Our Father, we're certainly humbled when we see a man like uh, Daniel, who from such a young age was completely committed to you, um, who, who stood for you. He was faithful and loyal throughout his whole life. Uh, it's amazing to see how you blessed him because of that, and uh, you had uh, you used him greatly. And I just pray that uh, as we go through this series this summer and look in detail at these various events in his life and the various um, visions that he was given, that you would encourage us to be like him, to be strong and and uh, and loyal to you and and submissive to you, and obedient and and um, to, uh, as the song says, carry the gospel banner high, um, help us uh, not to be afraid. Think of those uh, friends of his who uh, were not afraid to lose their lives and be thrown into the fiery furnace before they would um, um, be disloyal to you. And uh, we just want to be like that, Lord, and we confess that we often aren't, um, but we pray that uh, this study would uh, move us in that direction, that uh, as a result of this, we would all dare to be Daniels. Thank you for this time we've had together today, and I pray that you would uh, you would just excite our hearts as we uh, make our way through this book. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The meeting is over.